I want to talk to you this morning about worship. Worship is a very important part of our faith. It's very, a very important part of what we do as a body, the body of Christ, in coming together. Now, I'm, I've titled this Presence or Power. Um, it's a debate among a lot of churches of what's most important. Is it the presence of God or is it the power of God? And what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach about this? And so I, I want to share with, this, uh, with you on this this morning. In fact, there's lots of churches that don't want either. They just want kind of a, a, a ritualistic, even Pentecostal churches, some of them, um, really don't want any demonstration of the gifts of the Spirit. And so they uh, tend to be just more program-oriented and maybe save those kinds of experiences for prayer services or other meetings. But uh, worship is extremely important to the body of Christ, and so is the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to go through a few passages of Scripture, very briefly each one, and uh, just ask you to open your heart to what the Holy Spirit would would say to you. And by the way... um, we are going to have coffee at the end of the service if anybody wants to stay, especially visiting. Uh, there's coffee and cookies, and uh, it's a time of fellowship that you're welcome to join in on. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, it says that Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those that he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So you had two aspects of this, the presence. Uh, He had sent them out to be, or he called the twelve to be with him. So this is intimacy, this is fellowship, this is getting to know him. And then secondly, he sent them out to preach and to have power, to have spiritual authority, Uh, and the example that's given here is to have authority over demons. So there was nothing that could stand in their way when it came to fulfilling the commission that Christ gave them. So just keep those two things in mind. First of all was the presence to be with him, and then the power to minister in his name and to affect the world. Then it says, if you follow a few chapters later, in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to verse 37, Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, and teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Hmm. Kind of an interesting request. Uh, uh, Lord, we want you to do. So here are they dictating to God what God God should do, uh, what Jesus should do. And, And so he says, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, replied, excuse me, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And uh, so here, here's, here's these disciples. They've been with him and they've got to know him. And then he's given them power and authority to minister in his name. And then they come along and they say, uh, will you do anything that we ask? And here's what we want. We want to be able to have the most ultimate authority possible. That we might be able to uh, uh, sit one in your left hand, one in your right hand in glory. So this is, they wanted the seat of government. They wanted authority. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Now, what had happened was... The time that they spent with Jesus had created an inner desire. And, you know, this inner desire was good. But they interpreted it as having authority. So here was this desire in their hearts, and it's a desire that's in every one of our hearts. Every person has a yearning, a longing, and it's fundamentally spiritual in nature. But they interpret it as uh, this yearning and desire, instead of for more of the presence of Jesus, it was more of his authority, even ultimate authority, uh, to sit on his left and right in heaven. And uh, it it was just, uh, uh, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. So here are two disciples 
They've misinterpreted what God intended for them, what Jesus intended in the time that they spent with him. And what they wanted was not more presence, but more power. Uh, let me share another example. This is an example of an, a woman, uh, uh, this time, not a follower of Jesus at, at the first. And she uh, sets an example uh, of interpreting the call of worship uh, in, a, in a misinterpretive way. She totally missed it. So uh, it's the story of the Samaritan woman, and it's in John chapter 4. And Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria, which was a hostile region. Hostile. And uh, as they're passing um, through, they, they see this well where there's a place to get uh, water to drink. And Jesus comes, and there's a woman at the well, and uh, she says... Um, uh, Jesus said, will you give me some, give me a drink? I don't have anything to draw water from the well with, but you do. Would you give me a drink? And she said, uh, aren't you a Jew? You sure look like a Jew. You sound like a Jew. Don't you know I'm a Samaritan? Uh, why would you dare ask a, me, a Samaritan, for water? You guys despise us. You look down on us. Uh, and, and now you want to get something from us? And she, she was a... Uh, uh, visibly uh, upset by this whole request that Jesus um, uh, had made to her. And, um, and then Jesus said, well, you know what? If you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for water and, and for a drink. And uh, uh, if you knew what the gift of God was, he said, that's what you would do. And uh, she said, you want to give me a drink now? You don't have a bucket. How are you going to draw water from the well? And then, and then this is what Jesus said. Everyone, and this is John chapter 4, 13 to 14. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And uh, uh, Jesus uh, said to her, go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, that's right, you don't have a husband. Uh, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with right now, you're living with common law, you're not married to him. And uh, uh, um, she answers and says, sir, uh, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say, and you Jews claim, that the place where we should, must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. And he was talking about the historical reality of Jesus uh, coming up through the family of the Jewish nation. And, and then he says, yet a time is coming. And this is verse 23. A time is coming. So there, there was something they had experienced in their relationship with God in the Old Testament. But it wasn't, didn't answer that deep craving of the human heart. It, it didn't answer that deep craving for fellowship, for his presence, for what Jesus described with his disciples, for them to be with him. And then he sent them out with spiritual authority and power to minister for him. But it was always the presence of Jesus before the power of Jesus. And uh, this, this yearning, this craving was deep inside every human being and is still that way today. There's a yearning for something that only the presence of Jesus can satisfy. That knowing him and worshiping him is just the ultimate reality, and, and it's of, of, of critical importance. A time is coming, and in fact it now is, he said, when true worshipers, so there's such a thing, there's such a thing as true worship, there's such a thing as false worship. And that can come in many, many forms. 
True worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, uh, I know the Messiah called Christ. He's coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared to him, uh, declared to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So here's, here's what she's saying as she's talking to Jesus at the well, and he's talking about water that will, he will give her its living water, and it would spring up to, within her as a, a fountain of life. And, and he's, she's going on, and then he gives this incredible uh, description of her past, having five husbands and now, and now living common law with a man. And, and she says, I perceive you are a prophet. She didn't perceive that he was the Messiah. She perceived that he was a prophet, but not this one who was to come. And so after Jesus describes this, uh, her life to, to her and talks about what true worship is, she kind of defaults to this, old, this idea, well, there's something more to come. And when Messiah comes, um, then he will teach us how to worship and, and uh uh, he will explain everything to us, she said. And Jesus said, I am he. I am the Messiah. I'm the one who fulfills every longing. Um, she had tried to fulfill that longing for relationship with having several husbands. And uh, none of them worked. She was now living with her six, uh, not real husband, but common-law partner, uh, living in that relationship, and it's like there was this desire for something more. And the fact that it is, and Jesus teaches us this, no man can fulfill the, the spiritual desire in a woman's heart. A man and a woman can have a loving and wonderful relationship, and, and Marlene and I uh, enjoy our, our love and our marriage, but uh, I can't fulfill the sp spiritual needs in her life. Only Jesus can do that. And so uh, she uh, cultivates the practice of the presence of God in her own right, not through me. I contribute to that, and we worship together, and we pray together, but I can't meet her spiritual needs, and neither can any woman meet the spiritual needs of a man. We are called, each one of us, to develop his presence in our lives. We are called, each one of us, to have water come in before water can come out. <laughs> uh, it, it, the water I give you, it, it, it is life. And when you receive that water, it'll come, and it'll be like a wellspring that bubbles up inside you, and, it, and it's released out around you to others, to your family, to your husband, to your wife. But that wellspring does not come from human relationships. That wellspring comes from the only fountain of life, the only place where the deepest longings of the human spirit are satisfied, and that's Jesus. That's knowing him. That's knowing his presence. Uh, we all have to ask ourselves, where are we finding uh, fulfillment in our lives? Is it in someone else? Is it in money? Is it in sports? Is it in career? Is it in relationships? Um, we could try everything, but none of those things will be satisfied. It will satisfy the longing of our heart. The only one who can do that is Jesus. And a church... We can have a lot of programs, a lot of things that we do, music, preaching, programs, children's ministry, youth ministries, all of these things are valuable and can be blessed by the Lord and are blessed by the Lord, but they are not the source of our spiritual life. My preaching is not a source for your spiritual life. It can contribute to it 
but I'm not your source, nor, nor is any other preacher or prophet in the world. There is only one, and that's Jesus. And so in developing uh, a relationship with, you, with, with him, you find those deepest longings of your spirit become met. Uh, Jesus said to the woman, uh, true worshipers will or shall worship him in spirit and truth. That wasn't a declaration of a command, shall, but it's a declaration of a possibility. Uh, our relationship with Jesus is not based on a command. It's based on love. It's based upon an exchange of love. And, and that is the real truth. It's spirit and truth shall worship him in spirit and in truth, not in a ritual. In fact, sometimes we think that the worship time in the service is the music and singing time. And if, if that's what we think, then we're missing something, missing the big picture. The worship experience in the church is him, is Jesus. So our music contributes to that, and we'll read a scripture in a little while that says that. But it's not about music. It's not about uh, the things that we do when we come together that uh, are important, in fact. But they are not the essence. They are not the substance. It's not the real spirit. What is the spirit is a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the essence is Jesus. So the woman at the well misinterpreted her experience with Christ, as we often do. Although this person wasn't a believer, at least not when the story starts. But here's a story, and I'll just give it to you briefly, of a guy who was definitely not a believer at first, but then he became a believer, and then he, then he made a huge mistake, and then he was thoroughly scolded for his mistake, and eventually he repented from his mis mistake. The guy's name is Simon. He was a sorcerer. He practiced witchcraft. And uh, I'm going to read a few verses from Acts chapter 8, and then we'll show a couple of them up on the screen. Uh, those who had been scattered preaching the word, uh, uh, and so the, the people that were scattered were people uh, who, as a result of the execution of the martyrdom of Stephen, uh, the follower of Jesus, Stephen was martyred and, and people scattered to save their lives. But wherever they went, they preached the word. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Remember Samaria? <laughs> was that place where the woman said to Jesus, you know, we have no dealings with you. You don't have any dealings with us. But Philip didn't lock into that idea. He locked into the idea that the gospel is for everybody. And so he went to Samaria and he preached the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. So here's Philip doing just what Jesus had authorized him to do, to preach the gospel with signs following. And uh, that would have been the casting out of demons, I'm sure. It would have been the healing of the sick. It doesn't say specifically. It just says that they're all of the signs, all of the things that he performed. For with shrieks and pure spirits came out of them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Actually, I guess it does say what he did. And uh, so there was great joy in the city. So there was ample physical evidence of the power of Christ. Now, Philip had learned the presence of Christ. And so his outflow of ministry was based upon that. So when he encounters this very unusual character called Simon, he, he recognizes the tremendous error of this man's life. And it says that now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery, witchcraft, in the city and amazed all the people in Samaria. Now, we have to recognize that signs and wonders aren't just the exclusive domain of the church or of the kingdom of God. There are signs and wonders that are practiced by those who are evil. Satan has power. And he boasted that he was someone great. And this Simon was operating in the power of the devil. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. 
As it was then, so it is now, that so much is attributed in our world to God when it really isn't from him. There's so many uh, ideas about religion and, and the power of being able to, uh, it can happen in witchcraft, it can happen in so many different kinds of, of religions. Uh, it just can happen in, in so many ways um, where people tap into what they believe is the power of God and what they're being led into is a lie. But uh, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery, it says. But when they believed Philip, so Philip comes along with the message of Jesus, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, and in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So, it was a great revival. And it says there was great joy in the city. This was an experience they had never had before. And Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. So Simon, who himself had performed signs and miracles and wonders, now experienced something that was greater than himself. He recognized it. He recognized that there was a longing in his heart for something much more than him through all his sorcery and all the public acclaim that he received as a result of it was providing for him. And it says, uh, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And now watch the scripture here. It's verse 15. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they met, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, and he said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon was focused on the power, and he missed the whole essence of what had been happening. Now, he saw the signs and wonders, the miracles and the exorcisms, and he was truly amazed at them because of the degree. But he was able to perform signs and wonders himself. So he didn't ask the apostles for the power to perform miracles in the name of Jesus. He just watched them. Uh, He was actually baptized. He became a believer. But when the Holy Spirit came, there was something about the presence of the Holy Spirit that was more than what he had. It was an outpouring of God in the third person that complemented and authenticated the coming of God in the second person, and that is in the person of Jesus. And so the phenomenon of receiving the Holy Spirit was something that was clearly demonstrable, was clearly evident, and clearly noticed by Simon. What's your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, Do you practice a prayer language? Do you have a prayer language? Well, these are all questions Uh, to ask, uh, but ask it in this sense. What is the purpose of that, the primary purpose? And the primary purpose is to glorify Jesus. And I I won't get into that text this morning. I actually included it in my notes, but I'm just not going to have time to get in there. But the whole purpose of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to glorify Christ. And so it becomes presence. First and foremost, the primary reality for a church, for our our lives as believers, is the presence of God. Wow, I love your presence, Lord. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Just some, some thoughts of songs that we have sung here and still sing today. The presence 
how do you define that? How do you actually, sometimes you, you can go to church and you can say, wow, the presence of the Lord was so rich there today. And other times you might not quite sense that. It doesn't have that same sensation, it seems. What are the differences? What, why, why is one service seemingly better, if you will, than another service? And, sometimes, and somehow we, we've connected it with the idea of the presence of God, and that's the truth. That's what we should think. That's how we should. And so what are come, some of the things that can, can go into affecting that? Well, uh, have we prayed before coming to church? Have we, been, uh, have we stayed up all night watching the Leafs beat the Canadians? Actually, that's not for a couple more weeks yet. Um, have we, you know, have we done... Have we worked so hard that we're too tired when we come to church to really, we're really, our, our minds are tired, our bodies are tired? Have we, what have we done to prepare ourselves for coming into the house of the Lord? And even the motivation for coming into church on a Sunday morning, is it out of duty? I have to do this because it's expected of me. God expects it of me. I, I know it's important for me. And, uh, or is it, as the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So there was a sense of gladness, which is an outward expression of joy. It's like, wow, it's time to meet with the body of Christ. It's time to come into his presence and worship. And... Simon, it says, saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands, and he offered the apostles money, as if you could purchase or somehow manipulate or somehow by on your own create this very wonderful, wonderful reality about the presence of God. Uh, James and John had missed it. They had been with him, but then they missed the whole idea, it wasn't about governmental authority or sitting on his left hand or his right hand. It was about him. It was about worship. It was about knowing him. And, and the woman at the well, she missed it. She thought Jesus was just a prophet. She didn't understand this thing about this living water, and she questioned him about it. Um, Simon thought you could buy it. The presence of God was a commodity, um, not a person. Uh, Simon was unaware of his need to worship. He lusted for power instead of loving Jesus. It was an insidious substitute for worship, and oh, how easy it is for us to substitute in our lives things that only are satisfied by a true worship experience. Uh, I'm going to uh, close with one more scripture. And uh, it's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 20. And uh, I think we have it up here. Uh, yeah. Be very careful then, very careful, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. That's true. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Then he says this, do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, or it leads to excess, as some other translations put in it. It says, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So, so here is uh, two contrasting opportunities. One is debauchery. It's, it's wine, it's parties, uh, it's success, which literally, from the Greek word, translates into anything that is unsafe. 
It's, it's, it's something that once you participate in it, uh, you don't recover what you lost. Uh, it's, it's abandonment to sensuality, to lust, uh, to revelry, to sexual immorality. And it's all associated with this idea of excess that is often characterized by wine or alcohol. And so Paul says, don't be drunk with wine because it will rob you of being wise. It will rob you of your carefulness when it comes to how you live. It will rob you of the opportunities that we are summoned to make the most of. And, and it brings us into a realm of foolishness instead of a realm of wisdom. Um, this Wednesday... Um, we're, with the youth group, we're talking about Joseph. And uh, we're coming to the part in his life where uh, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And uh, so Joseph is in a strange place, a place where they worship di different gods. He's alone. There's no other companion with him who comes from the nation of Israel. So there's nobody else who worships Jehovah as he does. He's in there. He's been promoted to the highest place he possibly could be promoted in, in this man who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And so he's, he's reached prestige uh, uh, far more than, well, he was in a pit for a while. He was sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelites. He was given up for dead. Uh, his coat was dipped in the blood of animals and brought to his father Jacob, who loved, jo who loved Joseph. And now they told him he was dead. And uh, really, they had sold him to uh, make 20 pieces of silver off of, off of selling him to the Ishmaelites. And now here he is in this strange land, and contrary to everything that his brothers had imagined, he ends up prospering, and everything's going great, and then sexual temptation comes. How's he going to handle it? And we're going to talk about that in youth group this Wednesday. In fact, I'm teaching the lesson uh, to both the junior highs and the senior highs, and there's a lot for them to understand about human sexuality and what God ordains and what God doesn't ordain. One of the subjects we won't deal with this week, but the whole matter of homosexuality. And in our culture, uh, teens and children are taught that it's okay. It's just another form of, of human expression, uh, love expression, and yet the Bible says something quite different. And it also says something quite different about premarital sex, about having sexual relationships before marriage, and which, again, is very uh, widely practiced uh, in our culture today. And um, uh, just, there's just, uh, anyway, I told the teens, Pastor Bruce is going to give you a sex talk on Wednesday night, and all of their eyes went like this. And uh, I said, what's so, so surprising? And uh, I said, do you know that it talks a lot about sex in the Bible, especially as it relates to youth? So um, Pastor Bruce talks about sex Wednesday night. You can sneak in the back if you want to. The Canadian Center on Substance Abuse uh, talks about teenage drinking. Listen very carefully to this. Just like the body, the human brain is still developing throughout adolescence and early adulthood until about 24 years of age. For those of you that are over 24 as I am, our brains have finished developing to bed. The frontal lobe is the last part of the brain to mature and is involved in planning, strategizing, organizing, impulse control, concentration, and attention. So this little lobe up here in the front of our brain is critical to developing all these areas of our life. Drinking alcohol while these changes are occurring can have negative effects on the brain's development. In addition to this risk, 
Uh, puberty causes neurochemical and hormonal changes that make adolescents more likely to engage in risky behavior and seek thrilling experiences. Starting to drink at the time when strategy and planning skills are still underdeveloped and the desire for thrills is high can have harmful effects on youth's health and safety. Youth might not be familiar with the effects of alcohol, putting them at risk for dangers such as injury and alcohol poisoning. Most young people do not drink in moderation on a regular basis, but rather alternate between periods of abstinence and binge drinking. Drinking alcohol can lead youth to make bad decisions, such as driving after drinking or getting into a car with a driver who has been drinking. Drinking is also related to increased chances of suicide, homicide, drowning, and experiencing or committing physical or sexual assault because alcohol impairs judgment, reasoning, and the ability to evaluate risk. Recent trends suggest that some youth are combining alcohol with other drugs or caffeinated energy drinks. These substances can interact to increase risky behaviors and can cause dangerous and unpredictable effects on the body, including alcohol poisoning, drug overdose, and death. And our, as you know, uh, alcohol abuse among teenagers, college students is is not uh, is a, gr a grave matter and uh, a serious matter and one that has a huge effect on our society. So Paul is saying, don't be drunk with wine. Now it doesn't matter if you're a teenager or if you're uh, an adult, but don't be drunk with wine. Because what he's really saying is, there's a longing in your life that there's this craving. The woman at the well experienced it. Uh, James and John experienced it. Simon the sorcerer experienced it. He felt, they felt it could be discovered in some kind of external reality. Something that was out there. Some promise that somebody makes if you come to the party, you'll have a great time. If you come and do this, you'll just have, it'll be a blast. And so we find something out there that tries to satisfy the deep longing of the Spirit. And Jesus says to us now, as he said then, the water that I give you is different than anything you'll find out there. Woman, no amount of sexual relationships with however many men is going to satisfy that longing of your heart. It only comes from experiencing the life of Christ through the infusion of his living water by his spirit. And then the outflow of that is just a powerful reservoir of God's love and presence bubbling up with you and flowing out to your family, to your church, to the world around you. That's where it is. Don't be drunk with wine, where it is excess that will destroy you, but be filled with the Spirit. So that, that longing that the world and the devil so powerfully tries to satisfy us at any stage of our life can actually only be fulfilled through the presence of Christ, through the gift of his Spirit. Why do we spend so much time... Uh, with our children, with our teens, with pouring into their lives the Word of God. Uh, we're creating lessons for them to be able to follow on the life of Joseph through this fall. And then we want to create opportunities, times for them to be able to go someplace where they can focus on the Word, focus on prayer, and focus on receiving the impartation of the Holy Spirit but as wonderful as that is, as raising up our kids to be prophets and evangelists and pastors or whatever, the primary reality, first and foremost, is not the gifts of God, but the presence of God. It's not his power. It's his person. 
the person of Jesus. And here's what he says. When you come together, speak to one another with psalms, hymns. A hymn, a hymn is different than a song. A song is about some, something, so whenever we sing a song, we can say it, it has us or me as the subject. So I'm so glad Jesus rescued me, singing glory, hallelujah, Jesus rescued me. It's, it's me. It's, it's what God did for me. It's a testimony. It's a song. Gospel songs are wonderful. I love them. But a hymn is something different. A hymn is something that is offered to God. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, early in the morning, my song will rise to thee. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Another song. These are songs that are sung to the Lord. When I, I watch the lineup of what the worship leaders choose for a Sunday morning service, I, I try to differentiate between what are the songs that are of praise and testimony versus what are the songs that are actually offered to the Lord himself. And there is a difference. So hymns and songs from the Spirit. By the way, uh, speaking to one another with psalms literally means according to the psalms. So how does how, how does the do the psalms, which are the which is the worship literature of the Bible, teach us when it come teach us when it comes to praise and worship? Well, the songs that we sing and the and the hymns we sing should be according to the psalms. And, and sing. And make music from your heart to the Lord. You see, before water out, it has to be water in. Otherwise, it's just singing songs. You can come to church and the rhythm of the songs is happy and upbeat and the drums are going crazy and Danny's going crazy playing them and it's like everybody's just a, having a... Just, woo, I love those songs that I played today, and I, I left church feeling happy. Well, wonderful. <laughs> More of that. More of the joy of the Lord in the house of God. More of making melody in our hearts. But if all it is is melody and happy music, we miss the presence. It's the power of music. It's the energy of the rhythm and of the beat instead of the energy of the Holy Spirit. Folks, the Bible says be filled with the Spirit. Today, here and now, you can start a journey. Even if you're a Christian, but starting a journey of practicing the presence of Jesus in your life in a greater degree than you ever have before, of learning to worship. Family worship is important. Teaching the Word of God to your children is important. What time is it? I don't have a timepiece. Four to twelve. For those of you that are new here, we, we're always done by 3.30. Well, a little earlier than that. Um, I want to share with you a vision for our Sunday morning worship meetings. And uh, it's up here in a second. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you to not just uh, say, well, the pastor got off on something again this morning. He'll get over it. Um, no, I won't. <laughs> I don't want to get over it, and I don't want you to get over it. I want you to get into it. All right? So, Sunday mornings begins with pre-service prayer. I'd like to start at 9.45. For those of you who can, I know if you're uh, on the music team, you can't, or if you're doing Sunday school, maybe you can come early, or if you've got children, uh, you can't come at 9.45 and pray, but uh, some of you can. And... If not, then, then in your home before you come to church. Now, I have a reason to do this more than maybe you do, but I, I get up quite early on Sunday mornings. 
uh, I spend a lot of time preparing my heart for Sunday morning where you say, well, that's natural. You're the pastor and you're preaching. But it's got to be for a greater reason than that. It's got to be because of the, the need for the presence of Jesus to be in my heart first, to be overflowing from my life before I can bring the ever, effervescence of his presence uh, in an encouraging way to the rest of the church. So pre-services, prayer, prayer is important. So praying at home, Saturday night or early Sunday morning, even while you're driving here, just spending time to worship him. Arrive at the church by 1020. Moving right along. Uh, Okay, if what we've read from Ephesians is true, that when we come together, we come with a song, uh, we come with the Psalms, the worship literature of the Scripture, we come with our hearts filled with the presence of God, we come to gather together with brothers and sisters, and there we're going to sing songs and hymns, and we're going to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. It doesn't matter what time I get there. This isn't going very well. (laughs) Do you know what? Uh, Most people aren't late for work or aren't late for school uh, or aren't late for other things if you've got a dentist appointment or whatever. But the appointment to gather with God's people for corporate worship on Sunday morning seems to take a lesser importance in our lives when it comes to punctuality. And yet the Bible says so much about time and how we need to redeem the time. One of the things we do here is we have coffee at the end of the service so that there can be chatting and fellowship. Don't use the early part of the service when you get here as an opportunity for fellowship or chatting. Come and prepare your heart for worship. It's very, very important to have fellowship. But let's keep that at the end of the service, and let's uh, get into the house of the Lord, to the place where the setting where worship is going to take place and do that at 20 after 10. Imagine if all of you here were next Sunday, uh, we're here at 20 after 10, sitting where you are right now. Uh, uh, wow. Well, uh, you guys are going to have to move here. Uh, It's fine for you to say that. You're hitting the highway. (laughs) No, but it's true. (laughs) Uh, We do meet on Saturday nights for prayer from 7 till 9. So there is a prayer service that happens. (laughs) But thank you for that. Um, Are you hearing what I'm saying? How many of you would? Not just raise your hand because you don't want to be noticed by other people. And they'd say he didn't raise his hand or she didn't raise his hand. What's the matter with him or her? But I mean sincerely. You will try to be here next Sunday and every Sunday thereafter at 20 after 10 in the morning. Will you do that? Come on, put up your hands. Yeah, because the, the reason for that is, and, and that's, you know, no, no later than that. Before that, if you can, and if you can come to prayer. Why? Because there's nothing more important than the presence of God. It's more important than the power of God because presence always precedes power. And then here's something else. I don't know if we can do this. I'd like to work toward it. I'd like to work towards the day when we'll be able to give you in advance, all the families in advance, what the worship literature is for the Sunday morning, what the songs we're going to sing, so that you can sing them with your children in your home during the week before you get here, so you already know the songs. And then your kids know them. I was watching uh, Gillis. Uh, Is it Gillis? Uh, I was watching one of the kids, anyway, singing some of the songs, and he wasn't looking at the music. He knew them. And he was down here singing. And uh, I thought, wow, that's so good. Now, on Wednesday nights, I've been coming Wednesday nights now because Joanna's on uh, 
maternity leave. And I noticed that the teens, they're up at the front here and they're, they're bouncing around and they're singing. And, and when they come on Sunday morning, it's like they act like the, the adults, <laughs> which normally is a good idea, but not in a worship service. Teens, don't be afraid to cut loose on a Sunday morning. Make melody in your hearts. There was great joy in Samaria when Philip brought the gospel there. There should be great joy in the house of the Lord on a Sunday morning, and it should find expression in what we say and do and sing and how we, how we just invite and celebrate the presence of Jesus. So next Sunday morning, parents, if you want to bring your kids up here and worship with them at the front while the worship is going on, while the songs are being sung, you can do that. And teens, you can do that too. And all of the rest of you, you can too. <laughs> but you don't have to come here to worship. It's just, it's just as I watch it on Wednesday, uh, how, how vibrant and buoyant the, the kids are. And they're very se- serious. And, and a beautiful worship that took place here this last Wednesday night. I'm going to close with this. I get a uh, devotional every day from Jack Hayford. He's a pastor. And uh, this morning... September 23rd, Uh, this is called Daily Moment with Pastor Jack Hayford. If you want the link, come and see me, and you can get this yourself. And uh, I have one in the bulletin, actually, at the back uh, from a previous day this week. This is what he wrote. It's called The Weapons of Praise. And this just came this morning. Just before I walked into the sanctuary, I, I downloaded this. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That was the scripture. And he said, when faced with the forces of evil, God's people are not to fear. Our greatest resource of resistance doesn't come from any arsenal known to human wisdom or device. It comes from knowing that the battle is the Lord's. We are never to to react from a position of weakness, but from one of strength. That strength is found faithfully remaining at our post of praise. Wow. We don't praise and worship so that we can beat the devil, but the fact of the matter is, when we remain faithful in in practicing the presence of God, he has no authority. That is the enemy has no authority over us. Well, let's stand.